0: Hey there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters. I uh, walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode four, The Wrong Tools for the Job, 1946. I'm Keith Pilley. Uh, so to kick us off here, I guess it's a thing now that if there are listener comments, I address them up front here. So, Lisa from Colorado asks... I'm loving the show so far. It's really opening my mind up. Do you have any idea how long it'll take to tell the whole story? Well, first, thanks. Uh, But second, I'm not totally sure how long it'll take. After years of research, I wrote a book about the conflict last year, and that is actually the thing I'm adapting for this show. So I do at least have a sense of what percentage of pages have made it into the podcast and how much there is to go. And based on that kind of thing, my rough estimate when I started, you know, putting together the first scripts was that I would uh, be able to cover the conflict in around 20 episodes. And that's probably true for a ballpark estimate. Um, It might extend out into the mid-20s. There's a couple of situations in the course of the history that um, I'm not sure if they will work better as two shorter episodes or one longer episode. I'll just I'll kind of see that when we get there. But, uh, you know, around 20 episodes is probably close-ish. I do know that I will cover the conflict until around the 1952 presidential election. Um, if the early episodes were structured so that an episode, you know, some of those first couple covered a year or two, That is going to change drastically as things heat up. We are going to have entire episodes that, you know, they cover a couple hours worth of action. So, yeah, about 20 episodes going through 1952-ish. I did do a lot of research on subsequent sea creature outbreaks. So it's conceivable that there could be additional seasons covering those. Uh, You know, we'll see that when we get there. There's a lot of work to do here first. Anyway, okay. So last week, we waded deeper into the early stages of the US Navy's engagement with the sea creatures in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Ships continued to disappear, including a couple of submarines, as the Navy started the process of demobilizing after the war. And then Blackjack, Kraken, and El Pulpo attacked and totally demolished the western end of the Panama Canal. This flipped the government posture on its head. As far as Harry Truman and Washington were concerned, it was no longer time to downplay the creatures. It was time to get rid of them. This week, the Navy tries to get rid of them and learns a few harsh truths in the process. The existing sense of crisis was heightened in March when an enormous octopus, similar to El Pulpo but smaller, erupted from the water off of the public pier at Venice Beach, north of Los Angeles. The octopus attacked the pier, which was packed with tourists, knocking at least 20 people into the ocean and directly grabbing four of them. As the terrified crowd fled the pier, Onlookers on the beach were aghast to see the octopus stuff the people it had grabbed directly into its beaked mouth um, and then reach around to grab and eat more people out of the water. Nine people were reported eaten and another seven drowned before the octopus lost interest and went back out to sea. Meanwhile, Truman's directive to take some action by God worked its way through the Navy's command structure, which was still essentially preoccupied with the task of demobilization. CNO Nimitz and his newly named replacement as sink Admiral Raymond Spruance, had a good working relationship from the war when Spruance had repeatedly successfully carried out Nimitz's high-level strategic objectives at sea. Spruance had been Nimitz's most reliable fleet-level commander during the war years. Now, in a slightly different power arrangement and drastically different context, the two men set to the task of eliminating the sea monster menace. Spruance's preference, born out of years of carefully considered conflict against sometimes superior Japanese forces, was to avoid engaging his ships in combat without extensive planning beforehand. But several times in the war, he had proved himself an able improviser. And the word from Nimitz in Washington could not have been clearer. After what happened in Panama, this had to end as quickly as possible, both for the sake of the nation and the reputation of the US Navy. So Spruance's staff set to work assembling a crash plan to search the ocean for creatures and to fight them. But they were hamstrung both by the need for quick action and by the many, many unknowns of the behavior and physiology of the creatures. Unbeknownst to Spruance, the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI, had initiated a specialized subdepartment, internally nicknamed the Sea Serpent Desk, dedicated to gathering usable information about the sea creatures. However, the siloed nature of naval bureaucracy meant that only a handful of members of Nimitz's staff, not including the CNO himself, were even aware of the existence of the ONI team, and Spruits' SIGPAC staff were completely unaware. As a practical matter, the ONI team had very little in the way of useful information to offer until later in 1947, when the civilian mathematician Dr. K. Hendry joined the operation. Uh, That name doesn't mean much now, but it will. We will get there. Anyway. For Spruance, even the size of the threat wasn't known for sure. El Pulpo and Black Jack Kraken were known threats, but rumors were afoot of other creatures, some of similar size and some in larger numbers much smaller. In the end, the best Spruance and his staff could come up with was an operational order for the 3rd Fleet to sail and force from Pearl Harbor and execute wide area searches in hopes of finding and destroying El Polpo and Black Jack Kraken." And by the way, the official orders refer to them as, quote, the anomalous creatures that have plagued seafaring in the Eastern Pacific, end quote, but by February of 1946, the newspaper names for the creatures had gained common enough currency that recorded phone calls exist where you can hear President Truman talking to CNO Nimitz about that goddamn blackjack kraken. Anyway, the US 3rd Fleet was, at that moment, the most powerful naval battle force on the planet, even figuring for partial demobilization. Simply put, this was the force that had defeated the Imperial Japanese Navy. The ships of the 3rd were the best in the world, its sailors and aviators the most experienced, its aircraft the most advanced. With 12 fleet carriers and a handful of smaller supporting carriers, the third was organized for the kind of carrier air war that had dominated the war in the Pacific. But with eight battleships and literally dozens of cruisers and destroyers, the force had no shortage of enormous naval guns with which to engage anything it saw. In command was Admiral Mark Mitcher, the most seasoned air admiral of the war. At Pearl Harbor, Spruance privately asked Mitcher if he felt like the mission had a decent chance for success. Mitcher demurred on the grounds that the Pacific Ocean was enormous and finding the sea creatures could prove impossible. But he was confident that, if found, they could be destroyed. Third Fleet's firepower wasn't configured for monster fighting, but it was overwhelming enough that Mitcher was confident that it would suffice. Quote, it might take more shells than it ought," he told Spruance, but it's not like we're short on them. Hell, this is as good a way as any to draw down the stockpiles." Quote. Spruance accepted this and wished his subordinate good hunting. Mitcher's force set out from Pearl Harbor on February 21, 1946, the largest fleet deployment since the end of the war. Since Mitcher and Spruance saw the main task as finding the creatures, the fleet immediately organized itself into several clustered task forces, each of which would move through the ocean in part of a larger formation, conducting non-stop searches from both picket ships and carrier planes. Previous sightings of and encounters with creatures had been south of Pearl Harbor, so Mitcher began a series of widening back-and-forth sweeps in ever wider arcs moving away from the base. Tensions were high, with sailors and aviators keyed up to fight the menace they'd been hearing about for months. But day after day passed without a confirmed sighting, and the tension gradually turned into boredom and doubt about the utility of the mission overall. And then, at 10.42 a.m. on March 6th, scout planes from the USS Yorktown spotted Blackjack Kraken on the surface in open ocean, approximately 900 miles southeast of Pearl Harbor. Within minutes of receiving the pilot's contact report, Mitcher ordered a massive combined airstrike from the six carriers that were within range and ordered the rest of the dispersed fleet's task groups to move towards the contact at best speed. The carrier groups turned into the wind and the largest airstrike since 1945 was launched. The strike that was launched was typical for the tactics that had evolved during the course of the war. Protected by a swarm of fighter planes whose nominal role was to fight off enemy defenses, and who would therefore have little to do in action against sea creatures except possibly for strafing them with their machine guns, the force consisted of approximately 180 dive bombers and 90 torpedo bombers. The former represented the state of the art in precision bombing in 1946. As bombing from high-level flight, as from a B-17, had proved ineffectual in naval warfare, the dive bomber's tactic was to approach the target from an altitude of tens of thousands of feet and then enter a steep dive straight towards it, releasing a bomb and pulling up just before colliding. It was a difficult, hair-raising maneuver but it had proved to be the most effective and accurate way to bomb fast moving ships. Torpedo bombers employed a different tactic designed to work in tandem with the dive bombers. If dive bombers dropped bombs designed to penetrate from above through the upper decks of enemy ships, torpedo bombers flew low and slow just above the surface of the ocean and dropped torpedoes, which ran a shallow track under the surface of the ocean to detonate next to or underneath the hulls of the target vessels, which um, you know, in a minute we're going to get to why this winds up not being ideal. The combination of the two approaches, after years of frenzied wartime effort to perfect the tactics and correct persistent equipment problems, was lethal, especially when employed with the level of professionalism the US Navy had developed. But that lethality depended on targets the size of ships. Even the smallest Japanese destroyers that they were trained to attack was over 400 feet long. Everyone in the force, from Mitcher on the flag bridge of the USS Enterprise on down to the pilots in the air, was hopeful that the combined attack approach would prove just as effective against the sea creatures as it was against ships, but nobody knew for sure. The answer came soon enough. The strike, led by Commander Robert Larkin, commanding officer of the Enterprise's 6th Bombing Squadron, reached the contact point with little trouble. The search planes had been orbiting to keep eyes on the Kraken, and Black Jack seemed content to loiter on the surface. Larkin radioed back to Enterprise that he had made contact and was about to engage. Mitcher expressed disappointment to his staff that El Pulpo hadn't shown up, but was still happy to get rid of one of the menaces. Larkin's plane was in the first echelon of dive bombers. He described his run later to the FCDP. Quote, I wasn't comfortable with that mission from a tactical situation from the moment we took off. We were the best pilots in the world, yes, but we were the best pilots in the world at fighting against ships, not animals, and especially not animals that could just duck under the water. But orders were orders, and the mission was the mission. The strike force had done a magnificent job of staying in formation in the air on the way to the contact point. As we got close and verified the contact, and we could see him down there, plain as day, just sort of bobbing around near the surface, with those giant eyes of his, you couldn't shake the feeling that he was watching you. I ordered the force to split up into attack positions. That meant dive bombers line up to begin their dives and torpedo planes head down for the deck so they could move in and clean up. I nosed over and started my dive. Right away I could tell this was going to be trouble. We were trained to dive at ships and put bombs into the middle of them. This blackjack kraken was huge for a squid, but he was still nowhere near the size of a ship. At least not then, I know the son of a bitch did keep growing. I had trouble keeping him in my dive sights all the way down, but I did the best I could. That was the weirdest combat dive I ever did. No zeroes, no anti-aircraft fire, just silence. Would have been like a training run, except for all the mental tension, knowing what was riding on all this, and the fact that I was diving straight at a giant squid down there on the deck. The whole way down, he's just there, sticking up out of the water. Closer I got, the more I could see his face, and again, I swear to God, that thing was just watching us. Maybe he was curious at why all these noisy things were buzzing down out of the sky at him. Those dives take a while. You get a lot of time to look at the target you're barreling down towards, especially time seems to slow down as you're in the dive. On the way down, I promise you that I saw that thing figure out that these buzzy, noisy things in the air had something to do with people. I saw that son of a bitch get angry. I saw a lot of weird and terrible things during the war, but I don't think I ever saw anything as weird or terrible as that huge, huge eye looking back up at me out of that mountain of black flesh, just radiating so much anger and hatred that it felt like it was going to melt the front of my plane. By the end of that dive, I was terrified, even though there was no enemy fighter cover or anti-aircraft fire. I got to the bottom and released my bomb, but I could tell right away that it was short. Part of that was my fault, but there was another thing with this Kraken, and with all the rest of them. They were nimble in a way a Japanese ship wasn't. They could bob and weave in all kinds of directions, make these abrupt duck and cover moves. None of our targeting doctrine or practice could handle that, at least then. So I saw the splash as my bomb hit the water, too far away to even hope to catch him in a near miss. A couple more splashes followed as the men right behind me dropped. I could tell that they missed too. And then, as I started pulling up from my dive, my tail gunner reported to me that what I knew was going to happen had happened. The squid just slipped under the water and stayed there. I got onto the radio and ordered the rest of the dive bombers to go ahead and keep dropping on the last known contact spot. Maybe we could still get lucky with like a shotgun blast of bombs. Then, I ordered the torpedo planes to belay their runs. I figured that if Jack had gone deep, there was no sense dropping a couple million dollars worth of torpedoes into the water just to run around above his head. Admiral Mitcher himself came onto the radio to countermand me there, ordered those torpedo bombers to make their run and drop on the last known contact spot. We were going to leave no stone unturned, he said. So they dropped their fish too, which, Keith here, I should let you know, fish was Navy slang for torpedoes. Anyway, most of them didn't even detonate. Most of them didn't even have contact exploders mounted on the nose, so I don't know if they even could have detonated if they'd hit something. We just didn't have the tools to fight this kind of fight. So then, after about 15 minutes of wave after wave of elite planes doing their level best to churn up empty water, I ordered the squadrons to form back up and we headed back to the fleet. I tried to convince myself that maybe we'd gotten lucky, maybe he hadn't gone as deep as I figured, maybe there were busted up squid pieces floating around under all the churn back there. But I couldn't make myself believe it." And really quickly here, what Larkin is talking about with the contact exploder thing. So torpedoes are essentially big tubes filled with explosives with a motor on the back and a detonator on the front. Since they were mainly used against metal ships and often passed under the hulls instead of striking them, the detonators were usually magnetic. So without a lot of metal around to trigger them, they wouldn't explode. There were contact exploders that would trigger the torpedo if it hit something But those had to be specially mounted, and to be honest, those were rarely used and at that point were in short supply. So anyway, Larkin and the rest of the strike had a shorter flight back than the trip out. As they had been attacking, the rest of the fleet had just been surging towards them. As planes met fleet, the carriers swung into the wind again to recover aircraft, and the hundreds of planes began landing, turn by turn. And then... At 3.36 p.m., in the middle of the aircraft recovery, Black Jack, Kraken, and El Pulpo abruptly surfaced in the middle of a carrier formation and, working together, Black Jack at the stern, El Pulpo at the bow, pulled the fast carrier USS Intrepid underwater. Intrepid's screening vessels made confused efforts to shoot at the creatures with their deck guns, but to no avail under immense strains like nothing it had ever been designed for. The intrepid broke in half and sank quickly, taking over 1,800 officers and men down with her. The fleet scattered in panic, and although no planes had been lost during the airstrike itself, 24 subsequently splashed into the ocean with dead engines after running out of fuel before they could land. All but six of the pilots and gunners were eventually rescued, however. Over the next few hours, a stunned Mitcher and his staff regained control of the fleet and began a tense run at full speed back to Pearl Harbor. As soon as Enterprise docked, Mitcher drove to the sink pack headquarters to personally report to Spruance about the debacle and offer his resignation. With regret, Spruance accepted it. It was in the post-operation analysis that Lieutenant Commander Rich Trumbull, a veteran of the first Blackjack Kraken encounter on the Dahlgren, and now SyncPAC's unofficial special duty officer for sea creature matters, pointed out a troubling implication of the debacle. When it had first appeared, Black Jack Kraken was only big enough to buckle the hull of a cargo vessel. He was now large enough to, with help, Pull a fleet carrier underwater and break it in half. The creatures were growing. Quick aside on Trumbull here. At first, after being moved off of Sea Fleet after the Dahlgren incident, he was just a Sink Pack staff officer who happened to be considered the house expert on fighting the creatures. Over time, this role became more formalized with a special unit created within the Sink Pack bureaucracy. For the study and development of tactics to be used against the creatures and to provide strategic advice on the conduct of the campaign against them. Trumbull was at first the deputy director of this unit, whose official name was the Pacific Sea Creature Operational Survey, which acronyms out to PISCUS. By early 1947, Trumbull had been promoted to run PISCUS, which was from then on more or less universally known within the Navy as the Trumbull Group, because, well, it's just easier to say and less sleazy sounding than Piscus. Anyway, backing up. The next few months passed in grim monotony. From March to May of 1946, U.S. shipping losses in the Pacific reached 500,000 tons per month, rivaling the worst stretches of U boat losses during the war. The losses were split among fishing vessels operating off the coast, commercial vessels attempting to restore pre-war commercial trade networks through the Pacific, naval vessels being repositioned or demobilized, and, predominantly, cargo vessels en route from the U.S. to Japan to support U.S. occupation forces. Although some of the attacks were directly attributable to El Pulpo and Blackjack Kraken, Additional large, quote, primary class, unquote, sea creatures were cited and identified by ONI in this period, including, to use their common newspaper names, the Kelpman and Seagird the Sea Serpent. And we'll get more into those antagonists later. Additionally, ONI and the Navy at large accepted during this period that the overall number of creatures was growing rapidly with possibly hundreds of lesser creatures, often smaller versions of the primaries, participating in, in attacks, often in packs. In May, Joseph Stalin, noting that the supply bottleneck caused by the enormous American shipping losses was hampering the U.S. occupation of Japan, announced that Soviet troops would assist with the occupation. President Truman protested, but given his weakened state in the Pacific, he was in no position to do anything about it. And the truth was that American troops really were having trouble keeping order in Japan. Soviet troops first landed on the northern Japanese island of Hokkaido towards the end of May and were present on all Japanese islands by August of 1946. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please join me next week as things really start to fall apart in the Pacific. Is this a good time to be living on a remote island? It is not. Uh, finally, I would once again like to ask you if you are enjoying what I'm doing here. Please, uh, you know, tell one person about it. Um, somebody's gotta. Somebody in your life has to enjoy hearing the truth about naval history and sea monsters and. Government bureaucracy, everyone loves hearing about government bureaucracy. Um, yeah, so please tell one person if you feel like it's, you know, your thing. And uh, thanks. I will see you again next week. Them squids that didn't think about just who they was attacking. Wanker boys, get out there and bust them crackins. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Get out there and bust them Krakens. Line up all them battleships and send them seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them Krakens.